the next stop, Sprawlcast. You're listening to Sprawlcast. My name is Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl. Sprawlcast is a show made in collaboration with CJSW 90.9 FM in Calgary. And we are broadcasting slash podcasting from Treaty 7 territory. This is the home of the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Pekani, Siksika, and Ghana nations, along with the Sutina Nation and Stony Nakoda nations. This place is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. It, it indicates a fragmented life. It indicates a disintegrated life. It indicates a life which is compartmentalized around time and space and around who is in and who is out. That, to my mind, is a tragedy. For the past few weeks, The Sprawl has been doing what I call a Mighty Neighborly edition. That's a play on a funny Corb Lund song about trucks. But the idea is really to delve into the theme of neighbor and to explore some pretty big questions about community. How do we build meaningful connection in an urban landscape marked by disconnection? How can we be more present in our local worlds when the virtual world is always at hand, literally? How can we invigorate the life of the communities in which we live, And how do we remain open to the possibility of wonder and beauty outside our front door? These questions are, in a way, at the heart of David Goa's work. Let me tell you about David. For three decades, starting in 1973, he was the curator of folk life at the Royal Alberta Museum in Edmonton. He's also a religious scholar and teacher. And a lot of his work comes together at the intersection of religion and public life. He was the founding director of the Chester Ronning Center for the Study of Religion and Public Life at the University of Alberta. Religion and politics, these are two things that many of us avoid talking about, at least at home. But for David, growing up in Camrose and then Edmonton, these were almost the only two things you could talk about. So it makes sense that much of his life's work has been about interfaith dialogue and exploring different facets of the human story. For much of his career, he's worked to understand different religious communities in Alberta. He refers to this as working in the fields of meaning. I'm interested in David's work for a few reasons. We both have Lutheran roots, so I relate to him on that level. But long ago, I came across an interview with him online, and something he said really stayed with me. He was asked what his favorite tools are in his work, and here was his answer. Story, he said. Your story. My story. Our story. Stories provide the way toward conviviality. In the presence of story, the world is made new because we are changed. As a journalist, that struck me so deeply. Stories provide the way toward conviviality. David has this idea that all conversations remake us in some way. And one of the themes that crops up in his work repeatedly is the place of the stranger. He posits that if we are to live fully and meaningfully, we must welcome the stranger into our families and neighborhoods. A friend of mine once told me that David is a deep well, 
and I think you'll hear that in our conversation. He draws on ancient religious narratives, like the story of Abraham and Sarah, who are visited in the desert by three strangers who, unbeknownst to Abraham and Sarah, are actually God. They don't realize it as it's happening, but they are visited by the divine. It's a narrative that is present in Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And David pulls out of this story meaning for our own time, as you'll hear. I spoke with David Goa in his Edmonton home near the Mill Creek Ravine, in the neighborhood of Old Strathcona, and I began by asking him about moving from Camrose to Edmonton when he was a boy. We moved to Edmonton when I was seven. In Camrose, I think I witnessed, in retrospect, the last of what I would call natural community. Because Camrose, as you know, is a small town, and it was smaller in the 50s. It also had a substantial uh, Norwegian Lutheran presence, which was my parents' tradition. So church, the main street, the people you might work for or the people might work for you were largely known. And then there were people, of course, there were Catholics. There was a Catholic hospital in Camrose. There were some Ukrainians. There were, of course, pious people and there were secular people and no doubt the town atheist and the town drunk although the town drunk tended also to be the Roman Catholic priest, but uh, he was a good person nevertheless. So that kind of natural community where there is, I make a distinction between fraternity and community. Fraternities are like-minded people and communities always have difference in them. And I would also say they always have things that you cannot know in them, but you have to encounter. Communities drink from the same wells. Everybody goes and draws water from the same well, metaphorically anyways. So in small towns, you get, at least potentially, you have a larger diversity than you do in Old Strathcona, my neighborhood. Now, it's not that my neighborhood is large, so it's not that there isn't diversity there. Of course there is. But your encountering of it is uh, something you're going to have to work at it's not going to be kind of built in to the structures of everyday life. Whereas in small towns and villages, in real neighborhoods, it's part of how you walk the pathways. You meet the other. You meet strangers. You meet friends. You meet people you'd like to get to know. So I think in Camrose as a boy, the... Um, the kind of thickness where church, culture, and society are intertwined. They're three, they're braided together in your daily life. That then is fractured when you come to Edmonton. So it's interesting how I think all of our family felt when we moved here. We did feel a little bit like we were exiled, except probably my father who loved the city and who would get to know it immediately. The first 
late in the day after the moving truck was unloaded, not far from where I live now, to our new house, we walked down the gravel street to uh, 82nd Avenue, which at that time was still gravel. This is 1951. Walked across it to a store because we needed milk and bread. And in that store, my father sort of took the measure of the gentleman who was on the shorter side and uh, my father introduced himself. So this gentleman introduced himself. His name was Moses. And my father, having drunk deeply of the scriptures, immediately said, oh, you're a son of Abraham. And there the conversation began because he was Jewish and uh, my father loved that, loved encountering that and meeting that. So that, in my childhood, those kind of gatherings or those kind of moments of encounter are something that I deeply treasure. But it was against the backdrop of this world that now was completely strange and where you didn't know virtually everybody you met. So that was a, a bit of the, the context Also, I would say that because of my, my father's um, deep interest in, in engaging the other, he would never have described it that way. That wasn't his way of thinking necessarily, but it was just his natural attitude and aptitude. We would go down shopping on Saturdays downtown, do the family shopping and what have you. And in Edmonton in the 50s, you know, it was much smaller than now. I would say that every third person would nod at you at least on Jasper Avenue. And you would always know a few people because Edmonton was still a kind of agricultural gathering place at that time. And there were very particular places you would go. So I developed, uh, I think because of those Saturday sojourns, uh, a delight in the city and a sense that meeting the stranger was always an opportunity. It was always a little bit like Abraham and Sarah who had perched their tent by the Oaks of Marmory. And as you know, the account, the biblical account is that, Mo, that Abraham is standing in the in the, in the door, in the flap of his tent, and he sees the three strangers. And that text is so beautiful, you know. It says he runs out to them. He runs out to them, and he begs them, please don't pass by. My lords, please don't pass by. And that narrative, of course, is the narrative also about, as the meeting of all strangers is, in my mind, all, when we meet strangers, it is often an annunciation. We will often hear a new word which will illuminate our life, illuminate relationships, illuminate the world. So there is that tension, which I think I sort of ingested rather early on, of on the one hand, longing for well-knit relationships and I was blessed also to recognize, I think, early on 
that well-knit relationships were good and virtuous, and they may be important as ground for meeting the stranger. But if you don't meet the stranger, those well-knit relationships are going to simply be what they are, become a bit ingrown, become incestuous, and not fruitful. Hmm. That, that description, you know, you describe Abraham running out, please don't pass, please don't pass by. One of the things we're looking at uh, with the sprawl is this, I guess you could say this fear uh, that's in many of our communities and fear about the stranger. You know, one story we're doing is about neighborhood watch groups on social media and uh, how these things often play out is, you know, I, I see somebody out my window, they look, I, I don't recognize them, it looks like they're up to something. And, and it seems at odds with what you're describing, where, where there is almost fear of, fear of the stranger uh, and, 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 and almost a deliberate, not deliberate, I shouldn't say deliberate, but um, there isn't that space. Which, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess one of the questions is how do we open that space within our neighborhoods or how do we, mm -hmm. those pathways? Or how we come to this curious place. Well, yeah, yeah. Because this is a curious place. It's not the way people normally lived in this part of the world. Um, but to now design cities, this is a huge urban issue. If you look at Edmonton, and if you look at what has happened to Edmonton in terms of its suburban development, as well as its land-based tax system, it is all, I'm not saying this is deliberate, but the implications of the way those two matters are structured are such that it creates economic ghettos. So you end up with people in a similar financial bracket in different places. And whether there are, whether they are gated neighborhoods or not, plenty of them are, they are gated mentally and they are gated in terms of um, the financial capacity of the, of the community. This is a disaster. Uh, we know from the study of the development of suburbs over the last 70, 80 years how this was engineered and what drove it. But it's clearly a disaster because it, it implies particular kinds of transportation systems and it feeds, and it's the spiritual disaster of it that I think is so significant. It, if you combine that kind of isolation with modern television and the internet, this makes it possible for people to live their whole life in a silo and to think that that silo is a safe, what an odd notion, <laughs> and also to think that um, that silo is what is real and right and good and true and beautiful. That's a huge change in the spiritual landscape of, uh, of human community.
I have, you know that I care a lot about uh, religious communities and the nature of churches. And we have seen, I mean, Gibson Winter wrote a book about this many, many years ago, uh, where he talked about the suburban captivity of the church, where you see churches which are inner city churches, they, be, they begin organically, there's a wave of immigrants, they come to the, largely to the centers of cities, and uh, they build their first institution, which is usually a church and a cemetery. And then, after several generations and the accumulation of wealth, many of these churches move to the suburbs, and they become captives of who founded them and what that tribe was. They become captives of their location. They're no longer located really in the city. Their suburbs aren't the city. Uh, in Romanian, there's a word for this. I learned it from a Romanian scholar when I introduced her to Sherwood Park on a little research trip with her. She asked me, what is this, David? What is this? <laughs> and we, we talked about it. And I tried to describe what it means to have this sort of outlying area where the houses all look pretty similar and uh, people make the same kind of income. And then they get in their car. They only sleep there. They get in their car to work, have to go into the city to work. There may be some services available there, but not all of them by any means. So she talked about the urbanius, the urban world, and what that really means. And then she talked about, you know, the paganius. She loved the paganius. This is the first time I realized what the word pagan meant. It means the wild places. And then she said, ah, this is neither the urbanius nor the paganius. And it's not the agricultural world. It is Mahala. Mahala. It is nowhere. Hmm. So by that, this isn't a, this sounds harsh, I suppose, but it, it indicates a fragmented life. It indicates a disintegrated life. It indicates a life which is compartmentalized around time and space and around who is in and who is out. That, to my mind, is a tragedy. When we look at, in my neighborhood here in Old Strathcona, I was on the, the planning committee for uh, about 45 years ago when uh, there were certain threats to the neighborhood. One of our clear working principles of the committee, but it took us time to get there, this required real argument, was difference. Uh, and I made the case, as best I could, and several others did too, that we wanted to live in a neighborhood where not everybody looked like me or everybody lived like I did, but where there was room for those of a variety of economic means, where there was room for uh, the local house where children could reside whose parents no longer took care of them, uh, where there was room for immigrants, where there's room for students, where there was room for those that lived alone or couples and families as well. Now why? 
because that's so much more a richard social texture and it contains surprise in it and if there's no surprise in your life i think that's another way of saying from a religious point of view the holy spirit is not present <laughs> although as we know the holy spirit is always present but if you structure your life solely in that kind of fraternal way, it really makes it very difficult for the new to present itself. It's almost, uh, it's almost like this rediscovery op operation of trying to, you know, learn about the person next door or learn about my street or learn, you know, to, to reconnect to these things that are very in one sense, very immediate and very close by, and yet are very... Hidden. Hidden, that's a good word for yeah, it. Yeah, hidden. That's true. There's another aspect of neighbor that is striking to me. Neighbor is also someone who does not enchant you. The danger of likeness is the danger of always being enchanted by the mirror you see, enchanted by yourself. And in that sense, if you're always in a world of likeness, you can never have the stance of faith because faith is that disposition towards what is coming to greet you, which you do not know and maybe never will understand. But it's a stance. It's the stance of Abraham and Sarah in, by the Oaks of Marmory to welcome the discovery of what you didn't know you, know you knew. And in that circumstance, of course, as we know from the narrative, it's that charming discovery that Sarah is pregnant but of course that is also whatever else it is it is also a metaphor for the fact that through the encounter with the other something new is born and that's always the case even if the encounter is minuscule if you're attentive something new comes to be in that so that's one of the great gifts of the city i think and one of the great gifts of, of neighborhood, if the neighborhood is shaped so conviviality can exist, as opposed to shaping the neighborhood so there can be no conviviality. Mm. There is only your way, and your way is mirrored by your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this hyper-individualist. Hyper mm -hmm. mm -hmm. um, which is not individual at all. Everybody's cut from the same cookie. Mm -hmm. <laughs> cookie cutter. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's odd. It feels like it takes some effort to um, to be mindful of that because mm -hmm. it's easy to quote unquote build community. That's that's a phrase you know lots of people use. I use it, um, and often when we talk about it, like what you're talking about, often we're talking about. Uh, getting together with people who share an interest um, or, or are aligned around a certain 
ideal or whatever it might be. Um, but what you're talking about, you know, with your being on the planning committee, you know, almost 50 years ago, um, you're talking about community as something very different than that. Well, I think 50 years ago, we were trying to prevent something. We weren't trying to build something. And, my, and I'm curious whether one can actually build community. What we were trying to prevent was homogenization. We were trying to prevent the planners, the developers, from making this a homogeneous area. And um, just based on their economic interests. So in that sense, we were in a position of critiquing something and then trying to use uh, the way in which properties are designated by the city as a way of ensuring that there would be diversity. I was in Sarajevo uh, several years ago with uh, Muslim colleagues of mine from Turkey that I've had a relationship with and we had a large conference in Sarajevo. And I got to know the man who was the head of the Islamic University in Sarajevo, a wonderful human being named Karaj. And his work, his uh, intellectual work and his, I would say, his community work has been around this question of neighborhood. I was thinking about him when you called me and mentioned this theme that you were beginning to explore in the thrall, the sprawl, the not sprawl. the thrall. <laughs> the but we, sprawl. Could, we could do a spoof version called <laughs> the right. thrall at That's some right. point. That would be good too. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me when you're going to do that. Yeah. I'd like to participate. So um, Sarajevo is a city that is now, all the buildings are pockmarked from the war because the uh, Serbian uh, militias we're in the mountains around it and shooting down on it. Bosnia, Herzegovina, and Sarajevo as a city was quite diverse. About a third of the population was Muslim. About a third of the population was Roman Catholic. About a third of the population was Orthodox. And within that, of course, you had many different mixes. All of them had their atheists, all of them had their secularists, all of them had a range of things. But my colleague, who's written about this in terms of Sarajevo, uh, we walked the streets uh, several days, and he talked about how intimate these three religious communities were woven together before the war and before all hell broke loose and how shocked he was that those intimate relationships that had gone back for generations and centuries, where the mosque was on one corner, the Catholic Church on another, the Orthodox Church on another, where people met every day and exchanged every day in their daily life, how that became severed by virulent, fascistic politics, and how the religious communities, all of them, ended up becoming a weapon in severing those relationships. And since the war, he has been working so vigorously to try and rebuild 
but he also talked about how difficult that is when the separation has occurred under those terribly virulent circumstances which, uh, which brought that about. But for him, Sarajevo had been this wonderful example of a city and neighborhoods, the whole city, but also all the neighborhoods in it, where Muslim, Roman Catholic, Orthodox, whatever they make of each other theologically, where their lives were woven together around what I call common wells, you know, going and, and uh, uh, making your way in the world just in a daily sort of way. So here in Edmonton and in Calgary, the situation is different. I mean, in the earlier settlement period, I think that was much more common. Now, because of the way we've developed the cities and around uh, only having an economic paradigm in play, we really are creating a series of ghettos. My own sense is that whether you live in a high-priced ghetto or whether you live in a, a ghetto that's, that's for the poor, I expect that the poor do better than the high-priced folks do, at least from a, in, terms of, in terms of their daily encounters. But my own sense is that we all do much. Our lives are all thinned when we don't do what we can to see that our neighborhoods are, are rich, which is simply another euphemism for diverse, and where the daily encounters can occur. It's, it's interesting. I, I think underlying a lot of what we're talking about uh, and not to get too, um, not to get too broad about it, but it, in a lot of ways, it seems to me we are talking about uh, the meaning of life. What is the meaning of life? What is, um, you know, what is the purpose of our work, our families, our communities? Wh wh why are we here? It seems to me a lot of this is has been answered in a way by the way that we're, we're building our cities, which is, you know, the, the meaning of life is to, you know, get as, do as well as you can uh, materially. Die with the most toys. Yeah, yeah, essentially. Um, and, and yet, you know, beneath that, there is a huge yearning. Uh, there's a huge dissatisfaction. I mean, you look at the rates of... Uh, depression in our society um, I mean it tells you it tells you something I think we need to interject into the curriculum and into the reading habits of adults the rereading if they haven't read it or if they've read it before of Leo Tolstoy's story The Death of Ivan Illich where you see a good person who did everything right and comes to the end of his life having done everything right. And it's empty. And the relationships have no surprise in them 
and they really have no commitment in them because there has not been communion. There has not been a coming together in delight around discovering another human being, not who they were, but the wonder of the fact that they were. And so it's, um, I mean, I have a prejudice about this. I think we are made for communion. We're not made for something. And we are not, certainly not made as to be consumers. But I've, I've often thought for years that, you know, to use a theological term, that the doctrine of the human that we find in capitalism and the doctrine of the human that we find in communism are in fact the same. Both of these great economic systems, and you can be critical of them, and both of them, you know, have their genius. The Soviet experiment was awful, but the experience of capitalism in Brazil is awful. So, <laughs> you know, uh, so both of them have their gifts, but they both overreach. And they overreach because their doctrine of the human is so narrow. Both of them see human beings as homo miserabilis. That is, they see human beings as needy. And, and they see the market as satisfying that need. Or they see the state as satisfying that need. That is to really mean that all human beings in the end, given this way of understanding what it means to be hu human, are consumers. What goes in their mouth what they evacuate, speeding up that process is the goal of life. Well, that is just an awful way of thinking of human beings. And religious ways of thinking of human beings have always been much more textured than that. And certainly within my part of the, of the Christian tradition, the, uh, the teaching and at least some of the experience is always that to be human is to be in communion. It is to run from your door to the stranger and say, please don't pass by. Let me go and make bread for you and meat for you. Let me wash your feet and let's eat and talk together. And that what you're describing, that's not an act of, of charity or, or just charity, is it? It's not charity at all, I don't think. I think it's an act of delight. When you see the stranger get perked up, you say, hmm, I wonder who that is. Now, that should not invite us to curiosity in the sense of wanting to, to uh, have our way with that person, that's equally problematic. But it is equally problematic to assuming that you do not want to look that person in the face and greet them. Because both of those positions are positions of estrangement.
and squander well, I, opportunity. I don't like to think about this in terms of charity. I think charity is significant, so we should think about it. But I'm really trying to get at something which is, I think, much more basically human, which is that as human beings, we are inclined towards the other. I think that's who we are. That is how we are made, to be inclined towards the other. We know that deeply when we fall in love, when we are inclined towards some particular person. If we come from good families, we know, we know it to some extent from them as well. But to not be inclined on the street is an indication that we need to do some work. And we need to do that work which lets go of our fear. And we don't need to do it for we don't need to do it for the sake of others. We need to do it because our own life will be richer. Because there'll be more communion. Mm-hmm. And more delight and more surprise. Mm-hmm. It's interesting as you were talking about that. I mean, it made me think of, uh, you know, there have been different campaigns in in Calgary and in other cities, uh, anti-panhandling campaigns, basically, that are along the lines of, uh, you know, don't give to panhandlers. Instead, donate to this or that charity right. uh, that serves this population. Mm-hmm. Um, because the idea is, you know, we don't want to encourage this kind of behavior. Yes, still do charitable acts, but do it in this um, kind of institutionalized way. Um, and 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 it seems to me that that kind of campaign is the almost the logical end of of, of what you're describing, where there is no sense of delighting in the other or wondering about the other Uh, but in fact no I actually don't need to encounter you at all Uh, instead I'm going to go through this completely sanitized and comfortable process by which I can you know write a check and feel good but uh, there's never that exchange or encounter and we have a further manifestation of this nowadays we have just this fall received our new instructions and our new garbage and recycling bins. So now this very good thing, which is how to recycle properly in Edmonton, which I laud, but I also realize those people that walk my back alley, who I have typically laid out bottles for and cans for, I now have to figure out how to schedule that so they can get them before they're picked up by the city. (laughs) So this is all the impulse to rationalization. And we have a strange notion of reason that goes back to the enlightenment that we have, this kind of technical notion of reason which brings order to everything. Well. That's why we have that story in Genesis about Abraham. There was no reason that functioned that way. I mean, for people in the desert seeing strangers, there's some danger in that. 
but of course, greeting the strangers and inviting them to stay is actually also in your self-interest. Um, but the fruit of it, as we read in that narrative, the fruit of it is always an enunciation, is always learning something new, seeing the world differently. Something's being born. And the danger of a kind of sanitized city is the diminishing of those possibilities. One thing I was wondering about when I was driving over here, I, thinking about your work at the museum and with different religious communities, it seems to me that you often had the experience of being the stranger, that you, you showed up. Um, and was mostly welcomed. Mm. Yeah. That's for sure. And did that shape kind of your, your understanding of all of this? Well, in retrospect, I, uh, uh, that certainly is there. But it's the other side, you know, coins come with two sides. So I think because of what I witnessed in my childhood and really throughout much of my life, <clears throat> it also made it, in that sense, sort of normal to go into a strange place without fear and with, with uh, a willingness to, to ask people to take me by the hand and lead me into the things they cared about. Central to that is, and I remember it so vividly, the Sikh tradition has uh, the discipline and the form of the free kitchen. So in all Sikh gurudwaras, uh, they have a rota, and families will make food for a particular day. You see this vividly on Sundays when here in North America when the Sikhs will go to the Gurudwara and they will, they will um, all eat together. I mean, in the Christian world, we call this an agape. They all sit on the floor. Nobody is privileged. So Queen Elizabeth could go to the Sikh Gurudwara and she wouldn't be served first any more than anybody else would. That's part of the discipline. So... Uh, I was with some students. I brought some students to the Gurudwara on one occasion. This is a number of years ago. And we had attended the, the service, the chanting of the Guru Granth, the bhajans, kirtan. And, uh, you know, we're welcomed in such a lovely way. And then we go downstairs to, the, to eat. And we stand in line and they we're served and sit on the floor and and then we're invited into a room to have some conversations with several of the people that I know there and um, one of them begins to describe the free kitchen a little bit and speak about what it meant in India and what it means here and then he began to express his regret he said here it's it's just not right I mean, you were here today, and 
you are guests, we were glad you were here. But I mean, almost everybody here was Sikh. In India, it wouldn't be like this. But here, because we're out on the St. Albert Trail, you know, nobody knows that this is for them, not just for us. So I said, would it be okay if I was to go down to 97th Street and pass out a leaflet telling them when to come and where to come and that the free kitchen was here for them? My students, you know, went like this. <laughs> the three Sikh gentlemen said simultaneously, would you do that? Please do that. For them, the suburban captivity of the Gurudwara, because that's what's happened to them too, has meant the loss of the very meaning, not for them as a community, but for them as a community that also was living in the world and in service to the world. So this is, this is a, you know, it's not there in all religious communities, but it's there in many. And certainly in my work and my going into various religious communities and simply going not because I had anything, not because I really wanted anything, but because I was interested in understanding how they understood. Uh, was almost always welcomed with eagerness. Part of it, no doubt, is many of these communities do have immigrants in it, refugees. So, seeing a white guy is something that maybe they had some views of that, but those views were, at least at first blush, they were always welcoming. So, we are every person in that narrative. We are Abraham, we are Sarah, we are the three strangers. We are the young servant that kills the fatted calf. I mean, in these encounters, all of those are there, and we may be any one of them. And it's really in that coming together, and in that shared bread and meat, that um, the meaning of life unfolds. Well, uh, we've covered a lot of ground. I'll ask you the same question that I ask everybody, David, which is, is there anything that you would add uh, that I haven't asked as we think about neighbor and how to make whole, I guess, this, uh, this profound fragmentation that we're all living in in our cities? I'm inclined to think that the most radical teaching of Jesus Christ in the Gospels is when he was asked by the lawyers, what is the whole of the law? And his response was, the whole of the law is to love God with all your 
mind, with all your heart, with all your strength. And then there's a break in the gospel text. And then it comes around. And your neighbor as yourself. But here's the kicker. The young lawyer then asks him, who is my neighbor? And he responds to that with the parable of the man who had fallen among thieves. Not only does he do that, he turns that passage in an amazing way. He talks about the high priest. And this is a text we find in the Talmud. We find this narrative in the Talmud. Where <coughs> in the Talmud account, it is saying that if the high priest on the highest holy day of the year, the Day of Atonement, which as you know is the only day in which the high priest in the temple goes into the sanctum. And the sanctum is that amazing empty space, which is understood to be the pure presence of the divine. And since Judaism never does anything by half, they tie a rope around his foot in case he has a heart attack in there because nobody else can go in there. And that's the only time in the Jewish year and the only moment this occurs the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and speaks the name of God. Otherwise, it's always Adonai, never saying the name, because that name is a curious, it's a curious form, which really means the one who was, the one who is, the one who will be. It's about eternal presence. But he speaks the name, and it's the only time in the Jewish, in, in Jewish tradition when that name can be spoken. In the Talmud it says, if the high priest is on his way to the temple on the most holy day of the year and meets a dead person that nobody will bury, it is incumbent upon him to pollute himself and to bury that person because ethics trumps liturgy. Jesus, in his account, because his account is a play on this, you know, Jesus never says anything that wasn't said in the Hebrew Bible. It's an interpretation of it. It's an accent on it. It's a song about it. It's pointing to its deepest meaning. So Jesus says to the young lawyer, a certain man was on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and he fell among thieves, and they robbed him and beat him and left him for dead. And the high priest comes along, sees, and skirts around him because he has sacramental work to do. Can't pollute himself. And then a Levite comes along. Levites can be a variety of people, but most often they're journalists or professors, you know. They, they have that kind of task. Comes along, he sees, comes a little closer, but passes by too because he's too busy. He's going to give an exam. He's going to get his 
get his article in. And then he says, and then a Samaritan came along. The other came along. The one who isn't even allowed at the temple or at times within the walls of Jerusalem. And he runs to him like Abraham, kneels down, binds up his wounds, puts him on his donkey. There's a beautiful image of this in, in uh, the great painting of El Greco. And takes him to the nearest holiday inn pays for him and asks them to care for him and feed him and he will be back on the morrow to pay whatever else is necessary. This is the radical teaching. Who is my neighbor? The insight there is, you know what? You choose your neighbor. And you know what more? You can choose the other or you can choose only your own. But implied in it is, if you choose only your own, your world will become very small. And that is not a judgment. It's a tragedy that needs healing because the world is large and is there for all of us. Well, thank you very much, David, for, uh, for your time and insights here today. Good to see you. End of line. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. You've been listening to Sprawlcast. I'm Jeremy Clausus, and I'm the editor-in-chief of The Sprawl, and you've been listening to my conversation with David Goa. You can find more of David's work on his website at davidgoa.ca. This episode is part of The Sprawl's Mighty Neighborly edition. We're delving into the theme of neighborhood and asking, how do we invigorate the life of the communities in which we live? How do we cultivate neighborliness in Calgary? And how do we keep our communities from becoming closed, homogenous places? You can find past stories and conversations on our website at sprawlcalgary.com. You can also find an edited transcript of this episode. We've got more stories and conversations coming on this theme, so stay tuned for those. This episode was edited by Mike Todd. Our theme music is by Dan D. Augustino and Kenny Murdoch. Our C-Train narrator is Holly McConnell. Thanks for listening and see you next time.